Father, we read in your word that your word is like a spring in the desert. It's like a gushing stream on dry land. May your word be that to our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okie dokie, here we go. The Shepherd's Detox, based on Psalm 23, number 4, in decision. In decision. In 1981, Bucks Fizz won the Eurovision Song Contest for the United Kingdom. Ah, making your mind up. What a marvellous moment it was. You see those girls ripping their skirts off now, so to speak. You remember it? It's all a bit much for an 11-year-old. You're laughing because you cannot believe that I was only 11 as you were sitting there with your oval team watching the Eurovision Song Contest, making your mind up. It's not necessarily something we've been that good at since 1981. It helped us make up our minds about the Eurovision Song Contest, but perhaps not much else. In fact, it's becoming harder and harder to make up our minds. With increasing regularity, we find ourselves dithering over a decision of one kind or another. And it's no surprise because there is much more choice than there has ever been. Take coffee, for example. It's mid-morning. You nip out of the office for a cup of coffee. You go into the coffee shop. Coffee, please. Milk or no milk? Milk. And within seconds, that's it. Done, dusted. Sugar's on the table. And within a moment of going into the coffee shop, you are sitting down, enjoying that all-important caffeine kick. Try doing that today. You have to answer more questions than your tax return to get a cup of coffee. Which one, the assistant says, pointing to the board behind, which has more items than your local Chinese menu? 28 basic coffee types in Starbucks. Commando, Dragon Blend, Sumutra, Salawesi, Gazebo Blend, etc. Not to mention the summer specials, Mint Mocco, Chip, Frappuccino, Ice Cream Special, and that new orange What's It that they're doing at the moment. All these decisions, but I just wanted a cup of coffee. And I haven't decided yet whether it's going to be in a cup or in a mug, small, regular or large, to drink in or take away. Or for that matter, what kind of toppings? Chocolate, vanilla, with cream, without or just tomato ketchup. It's why in many coffee shops these days they are providing sofas, because most people have to lie down after the complexity of choosing their drink. It used to be so simple. And it's not just Starbucks. In Sainsbury's, there are more than a dozen different types of frozen chips. What a computer from Dell. I chose my computer from Dell. And then they gave me 19 different choices to make before it could be mine. You're going to paint your room, and so you decide you'll pick a colour. And there are hundreds of colours. And you go to people's houses, and if this is your house, I'm terribly sorry, but I am going to make fun of you now, so brace yourself. You go to somebody's house, and there on the wall are six or seven different testers. To the naked eye, they are the same colour. 
but apparently they are subtly different. And you would never ever know that there's any subtle difference between those colours unless you compared them under very bright light one with another. But there are these six different colours that are all the same and they cannot make up their mind. So month after month after month, what's on their wall? Six different colours. We just can't make up our mind. They suffered the curse of the ditherer. Do you sometimes dither in a decision? Maybe this Sunday morning you just can't decide. And of course, when it comes to coffee or computers, well, what does it really matter? But for some, that indecision is played out in their lives on the big scale, not just in the minutiae. In the big stuff, they can't, they won't, they don't make up their minds. Not just in Starbucks, but in life, they're caught in the headlights of indecision. What should I do with my life? Who should I spend my life with? Should I go or should I stay? Should I do this or should I do that? And it creates an agony in the soul. It feeds upon itself. It eats away at our hearts. It robs us of the present. It steals our hope for the future as we dither in indecision. Nothing is so exhausting as indecision and nothing is so futile. Bertrand Russell. Like all of these toxins that we've been looking at, these poisons of the soul, indecision makes us miserable. It robs the joy from us. There is no more miserable human being than one in whom nothing is habitual but indecision. Do you see the way ahead clearly all of the time? If not, those decisions can be a large stress on us. And even long after the decision has been made, the decision still hangs over us. Did I make the right decision? Was that the right way? What if? What if I'd done that? Or maybe it would have been... And the decision, perhaps even long ago, still hangs over some of us. Decision is a sharp knife that cuts clean and straight. Indecision has been described as a dull one, a dull knife that hacks and tears and leaves ragged edges behind. Is your soul a bit ragged from indecision? In any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing, the next best thing is the wrong thing, and the worst thing you can do is nothing, said Roosevelt. Indecision and delays are the parents of failure. And James said much the same thing, didn't he, in the New Testament? He talked about a double-minded man. He's going this way and he's going that way. What's he like? He's unstable in all his ways. Essentially, to live in the valley of indecision is to live in a place that poisons our soul. The valley of indecision is no place to live. Although once in a while we're all caught to walk through it. Every summer we stick the caravan on the back of the car and we drive south through France hoping that every hour will take us nearer to the sun. And so we cover 600, 700 miles in a couple of days. And up until last year, we would print out the route uh, from the AA website on the internet and and we'd get this uh, carefully worked out route which had lots of detail about where we should turn, when and how, line by line. That route was an incredible source of stress. Every instruction produced anxiety within us. Is this the junction they mean? Is that the right signpost? Are we in the right lane? Are you sure we're in the right lane? 
And then afterwards, was that the right junction? Were we in the right lane? And by the time you get over the stress, there's another instruction. Eight miles to go, another decision. Bracing yourself for it. And this will go on all day. And it is true that on more than one occasion, Kerry and I exchanged pleasantries. <laughs> As we found ourselves in a suburb on the wrong side of Paris with a caravan up our behind. We bless one another with our words of appreciation and encouragement as we journey together. But this last year, magnifique. Someone here loaned me a sat-nav for the day when I was going into London. And I thought this little magical box is the bee's knees. Forget Psalm 23, this will sort all of my stress in one go. I was hooked. And last year, this little magic box instructed us effortlessly thousand miles or so around France. No stress, no worry, no indecision. Why? Because we had a guide. Door to door, perfect every time. You say, my sat-nav doesn't do that. You bought the wrong one. <laughs> we had a guide. A guide who knew where we were. A guide who knew where we were going. A guide that knew how to get to where we were going. In life, and we've not all discovered this in our hearts, in life we have a guide. A guide none other than Yahweh. Remember that capital Lord that this psalm began with? Yahweh, the Lord of all, who knows where we are, who knows where we need to go, and who knows how to get us there. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And David, who wrote these words, knew much of God's guidance in his life. Again and again, as you read through his story in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, you get this phrase, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. The first time he faced the Philistines in the wilderness, he inquired of the Lord. When he felt small against the enemy, he inquired of the Lord. When he attacked the Amalekites, he inquired of the Lord. When he was puzzled by what to do, he inquired of the Lord. When he was crowned as king and pursued by the Philistines, he inquired of the Lord. When they attacked him again, he inquired of the Lord. David had God on speed dial. Only ever just a few clicks away. Confused, David talked to God. Challenged, David talked to God. Afraid, David talked to God. And so it went on. But there were points in David's journey when he failed. When he failed to inquire of God. When he carried on as if God wasn't there. And in just a few chapters we'll look at this morning, we'll see a great crash of David because he'd failed to inquire of his God. And then we'll see him soar again because he'd learned his lesson and he listened very carefully. First the crash. 1 Samuel 27. If you've got your Bible and there's one in the pew, uh, get it open in front of you at 1 Samuel 27. And uh, you can just uh, prove that it's there and I'm not making it up uh, as we go along. Who knows what page number it is, please, in the pew Bibles? 300. 300. Just leave it there open just for a moment and 
uh, capture the scene with me. Saul is the king, and Saul is pursuing David. David doesn't seem to be guilty of anything wrong, but Saul is out to get him. Saul is very jealous of David. People seem to be shouting for David more than shouting for him. And he was the king. And so David has been fleeing for his life. And as David flees for his life in caves and in the wilderness around uh, Judea, around a thousand disaffected, disassociated, dissatisfied, ragtag soldiers had joined him. Sounds like quite a band of cheerful merry men, doesn't it? And so he's wandering around with all these disaffected people, with their wives and with their children, and he's kind of become their leader. He's responsible for making sure they get to the right place, who's going to feed them and so on. Uh, And above all, to keep away from Saul and Saul's army. And he's done it very successfully. And we don't know why this day. Was he tired? Was he distracted? Was there trouble at home? But David takes his eye off the ball. He stops looking to God, relying on God, inquiring of him. And as we might fear, as soon as he did that, it was only a question of time before there would be a crash, before things would go belly up. And here it comes in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. Who is filling David's gaze in that verse? Who is the focus of David's thoughts? Who is the name on David's lips? That place that over and over and over again God had occupied, consider all the Psalms that David has written, that place was now filled with Saul. And as Saul filled his gaze... David saw no hope because he saw no God. And David immersed himself in his own fear and his fear takes over. And so he says to himself, I'm stuffed, I'll be destroyed. David failed to see or hear from God. And interesting too in that verse, notice right at the beginning, it says David thought to himself. Not only does David fail to inquire of his God, but he also fails to inquire of God's people. Something he had done so often. When Saul first lashed out at David, David had turned to Samuel for wise advice. When the attacks continued, David asked Jonathan for help. When weaponless and breadless, David would take refuge amongst the priests of Nob. But here, David consults David. When you cannot see God and you are not hearing from God's people, you are likely to make a pretty dumb choice. When you cannot see God and you are not hearing from his people, you are likely to make a pretty dumb choice. And David makes one of the dumbest decisions of his life. He goes, the best thing I can do is to escape to the Philistines, to the enemy. He defects, he hands himself over to the enemy. He leads his men into the land of idols and literally makes his home in Goliath's backyard. It says he goes to Gath. Remember, it was Goliath of Gath. He ends up in the land of Satan himself. What a dummy. And not surprisingly, it led him into a very bleak 16 months of his life. It was going to be bleak going into the land of the Philistines. 
His wives and children were attacked and led away. His property was burned. The property of his men was burned as well. They even turned on one occasion against David himself as the leader and they were having this discussion about stoning him. It's like a church meeting and you're all having this little chat about whether you're going to stone me. I'm going, hello, I'm still in the room. That's what they were doing. And he's in fear for his life. Why? Because he'd abandoned God as his leader and as his guide. If we're going to navigate our way well through life and stay free from this curse of indecision, we must admit we need a guide. We must admit we need a guide. Admit that so often choice is not a blessing, but a paralysis. Because when we stop looking to God as our guide, when we stop checking things out with God's people, we so easily can end up in a gaff of ourselves. We can so easily land up in the land of other gods. The Bible makes it so clear that without God's guidance, we don't stand much of a chance of finding our way. We like sheep, but have gone astray. That's what we're like. When it comes to knowing which way to go, we're as dumb as sheep. When the crossroads appear, we're not quite sure which way is up, and sometimes like sheep, we haven't got a clue which way is up by ourselves. And then a warning in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man. If you think you've got it all sorted out, if you think in your head you can see it clearly, whoa, just be careful for a moment, because there are sometimes ways that seem right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. But to those who admit that they need a guide, his certain promise is that he will be with us in that. He guides the humble. Those who say, I cannot decide which way by myself. I need a guide. And teaches them his way. Those not too arrogant to think that they can choose out of the myriad of choices the right one. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask for it. So we admit we need a guide. But secondly, we need to begin to listen to his voice. The failure of David to listen is so marked in the account that we've just looked at because he had been so careful over and over again to listen to what God was saying. And there are a few things that I think, reading his story, that helped him to learn to listen to God that helped him tune in to the Spirit's voice. He developed a listening heart. And we need to do the same. And I think, first of all, he developed the listening heart through the worship of God. You see, David was a worshipper. From his earliest days, he had sung and composed and played worship songs to God. So many of the psalms that we enjoy are his worship songs that he has shared with us. And in 2 Samuel chapter 22, you might just like to get that open. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Someone give me the page number, please, in the Pew Bibles. 328. 328. So the second book of Samuel, chapter 22. And you can see in verse 1, David sang to the Lord the words of this song. 
and we haven't got time. I mean, this is a, a whole study in itself. We haven't got time to look at that song other than to notice that it's absolutely packed, jam, solid about getting his gaze onto God. In this psalm that David sings, he talks about the Lord who is my rock, my fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold, saviour, lamp. It's all in there. And he goes on to describe uh, the characteristics of God in different ways. And all of these characteristics are in there. Saving. He's worthy of praise. He's a listening God. He's a rescuing God. He's a rewarding God. He's a seeing God. He's a faithful God. He's a showing God. He's a revealing God. He's a shrewd God with his enemies. And he's a powerful God. And a perfect God. And a pure God. And a flawless God. And a shielding God. A giving God. A gentle God. A preserving God. A living God. Wow. One chapter. And he's packed into those words. All of those things in his worship that will help his spirit lift above himself, lift above his circumstances, and connect to the God who he wants to give all the glory and all the praise because he is an incredible God. And I bet when he introduced it to his church, they said, oh, I don't like the tune. bit repetitive that one isn't it God fills David's heart and gaze and he connects with God and because of that connection he can begin to hear God's voice when was the last time you heard God speak to you foster a worshipping spirit Get in tune with him. Get back to him. Let his truth fill your heart and gaze. God loves to speak to us. But we need to learn to listen. There are definitely times when I hear God speaking more. And I've come to recognize that it's not because in those other times God has stopped saying anything. It's because my hearing has become dulled. A few weeks ago, I took a long overdue time out just to listen to God. And if you haven't heard God speaking for a while, then all those doubts surface, don't they? Is God going to say anything? Has he got anything to say? Am I going to be able to hear him? And there I was thinking, perhaps God's got nothing to say. If nothing else, it'll be a nice walk. How wrong. I've been out there just a few minutes. I said, God, I'm here. You might have forgotten about me, but I'm here. And Lord, I just need to hear your heart. And within minutes, God was speaking about my ministry, about my personal life, about this church, about people that we know and and love. I was going, wow, I didn't know you had so much on your mind. What was that all about? It was about, Simon, you haven't been listening, mate. You've been doing your stuff, but you haven't been listening. And as God poured out his heart, I hope he felt better. And as I began to hear God speaking, I was just retraining my spirit to be sensitive again to that divine whisper. God doesn't shout much, does he? But he does whisper. I was retraining my soul to hear that still small voice. I was reconnecting my my spirit, restoring that spirit of worship. God, I'm just going to allow you for these moments to refill my heart and my gaze. I need to hear you speaking to me. 
And then this week I was ministering and God gave me some words that went directly into a person's life. And in a sense there was nothing unusual about that. But I knew, I knew that I might have not have heard that clearly enough. And yes, that couple of weeks before I got out there again and got my spirit retrained. Must encourage one another to keep our spirits alive and worshipful. That's the place that we hear God speak. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. It wasn't just through the worship of God, but it was through the Word of God that David had learnt to hear God speak. I haven't got time to trace that this morning. But the Word of God is ultimately, the Bible is ultimately the place that we go to hear God speak. You cannot add to God's written Word. You cannot take away from God's written Word. And if you are not letting the Bible speak to you, to ground you in the things that are true, then everything else is just froth. Everything else is just passing in the wind. God's will for you is to be found in His Word that He might speak to you. And if you haven't heard Him speaking, if you struggle to know the mind of Christ, when were you last really in His Word? It's like leaving the phone off the hook to God. I'm wondering why we can't hear him speak. And if we've never memorized parts of this book, how will the Holy Spirit bring them to mind? Yet the one who is listening, the one who is meditating, the one who is absorbing God's word is described in the Psalms like this. It says he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. That's not a bad epitaph, is it? It said at the beginning of the Psalms about someone who's in God's Word. How different is that to our indecision, to my indecision, to my dithering, to my not seeing clearly, to me not hearing correctly. Just muddling along. No, the one in His Word is planted by streams of water. The life that that tree needs is there being absorbed up through the roots and the fruit comes and the prosperity for the kingdom comes. Lose this day loitering. It will be the same old story tomorrow. Each indecision brings its own delays and days are lost lamenting over lost days. And we've been there. But those who hear the word of God rise up like trees planted by streams. So our listening heart, uh, people in God's word, and finally, through the people of God. Begin to listen to his voice through the people of God. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. I don't know what you're like uh, about listening to the advice of others. The Word of God teaches us to listen to the advice of those God has given to us. And one of the greatest privileges of church is to listen to God through each other. Remember your leaders, the writer of the Hebrews says, who spoke the Word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I'm sorry it says leaders there. That puts me in a bit of a square place. 
but it does talk about wherever we are leading in this church. Are we leading in such a way that others can look up and say, that helps me understand the way to go. They are living in the way and the truth and the life. I can mimic them because I see in them the kingdom at work. David so clearly built friendships that became so important to him. We've mentioned some of them already, Samuel and Jonathan. Later in life, 2 Samuel, uh, chapters around 16 through to 19, talks about five of David's key friends. David's going through a bit of turbulent time towards the end of his life, and he leans on five key friends. And as bold as brass, there in the story, were five major people that David came and sheltered under, took advice from, received counsel from, who were ministered to him as he had ministered to others. Have you got people around you that are helping you listen to God? Are the people in your small group helping you listen to God? Are they helping you navigate your way through the complexity of life? And as I said earlier, when you cannot see God and you haven't heard from God's people, you're likely to make a pretty dumb choice. You've got people around you that are helping you hear what God is saying. So how do we defeat the curse of dithering? We need to A, admit we need a guide. B, we need to begin to listen to his voice, the worship and word and people. And then finally, we need to concede to God's ways. A, B, C, concede to his ways. If you have a guide, you need to trust it. If you have a sat nav, you do well to do what it says. Although it has taken me up a one-way street once. And it has taken me down a residential cul-de-sac with the rest of the people in the car we're expecting to find a McDonald's. But apart from that, it's been a faithful guide. God never makes mistakes. And will we trust him as our guide? Will we concede to his ways? After David's failure to listen and ending up in Gath, in the enemy's country, The very next story is of David conceding to God's ways, even though he may not have understood it. You see, Saul died. And we know that David as a teenage boy had been anointed king in order to take over after Saul. And after Saul has died, you might have expected David to have rushed up to Jerusalem and to seize the throne for himself. But he doesn't. It seems like these very painful days in the wilderness have taught him a lesson. I've taught him afresh about listening carefully to God and only moving when God guides. He seems almost paranoid now to hear from God before he does anything. And perhaps that's not a bad thing. So he asks God, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1. That's where we are. 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1. Page number, Liz? 305. Thank you very much. In the course of time... David inquired of the Lord. What does he say? He says, it seems to be coming together, God. Shall I go now? Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Jerusalem was the obvious one, he asked. And what does God say? In essence, God says, no. No, go up just to Hebron. Where shall I go? Just to Hebron. Hebron Hebron was just a small, little, little nothingy type of place. Apologies to those who used to live in Hebron. 
Go to Hebron and begin your reign there. Oh, but I thought I was going to be king of Israel. I haven't waited 17, he's now 30. I haven't waited 13 years for this God. I don't just want to be the king over Hebron. I go to Hebron. And we read David just went. David just went quietly and humbly and he begins his reign in Hebron, a small Judean city. And with incredible patience and obedience, he stays there for seven years. Seven years and six months, to be precise. Since he was 17, he'd waited to be king. On occasions, he could have been king. If you know the story, you will know there were a number of times David could have killed Saul and so seized the throne for himself. But he never did. And now age 30, Saul has died. Everything that he's waited for seems to be coming together. What does he do? He goes to Hebron. And he stays there for seven and a half years. Why? Just because God says. That's all. He doesn't complain. He isn't anxious. He's learning to wait all over again upon God and be obedient to him. And throughout this time, no doubt there were other satellite kings, kings over other towns of Judah, some self-appointed hotshots that were riding on uh, Saul's uh, shirt tails, waiting to make their move. And David just patiently waited because that's what God was asking of him. And in the fullness of time, flip over a page or two, the beginning of chapter 5, in the fullness of time, verse 3 of chapter 5, The people come to David and together they sense this is the moment. This is the moment. Seven and a half years later, this is the moment. And they anointed David king over Israel. The end of verse 3. So now, David had to take Jerusalem. But that would be no small thing. That would be no small thing because during this time the Jebusites had been in charge of Jerusalem and during this time the Jebusites were were like coiled rattlesnakes and as David had sat in Hebron, Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem, just got stronger and stronger and stronger. They might have been able to take Jerusalem seven and a half years ago but now it was as if they didn't stand a chance. What had God been doing? God had made a tactical mistake in making them wait. And so strong were the Jebusites, so fierce were they, 2 Samuel 5 verse 6, when, <coughs> excuse me, when David and his men go towards Jerusalem, they start mocking him. Listen, mate, we're so strong that even our blind and lame people will sort you out. They're sort of laughing at him. We're, we're not even going to field our B team on this one. We're just going to let a few of the kids have a go with you guys, because we're so strong here in Jerusalem. But David was doing it God's way. David was doing it in God's time. And when a decision begins in heaven, it is utterly unstoppable. Isn't that true? Thank you. Let's have some more of those. When a decision begins in heaven, it's utterly unstoppable. And this decision had begun in heaven. And so we read verse 7, Nevertheless, seven years of the Jebusites getting stronger, nevertheless. Seven years of their taunts and their mocking, they might send us their blind and their lame men. Nevertheless, David captured the city. City was old, the walls were difficult, the voices were discouraging. Nevertheless. Don't you thank God for neverthelesses? Do we need some neverthelesses in our lives? It all looks against us, but nevertheless. Why? Because he'd waited. Why? Because he'd watched. Why? Because he'd listened. He'd been out in the wilderness for 16 months, camping with the enemy, and he was sick to the stomach of that. May we be sick to the stomach of living in a dark place when we can know the light of God in our decision-making. He guides me. He guides me in paths of 
righteousness for his namesake. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, maybe there's some of us here who just know again this morning it's been barren. They haven't heard you speak for a long time. Things have been chugging along. We've been doing our thing. We haven't heard you speak. We haven't heard you speak when we've prayed. We haven't heard you speak when we've read your word. Maybe haven't heard you speak here in church. It's easy for us to assume that, hey, maybe you're not speaking, God. Maybe you're not interested in speaking to us anymore. And yet, as we've discovered over and over again, and as I discovered just a few weeks ago, the heart of the Father is full of things to say. Full of things to say. Give us that listening heart. Draw us back to the heart of worship that we might hear you speak. Draw us into your word. That we might root our lives in words that are true. May we be people that help others listen. May other people help us listen. As we develop a listening heart together. And may we concede to your ways. Sometimes we don't listen because we know we're not willing to concede. Sometimes we don't listen because we're scared of what you might say. We're scared of the challenge. We're scared of the conviction. Oh God, lift the scales from our eyes and our ears. Would you open our ears?